Kendra R. Parker is an assistant professor of English in the Department of Literature at Georgia Southern University. She is the author of She Bites Back, Black Female Vampires in African American Women's Novels, 1977-2011, and co-editor of the Bloomsbury Handbook to Octavia E. Butler, which we discuss in this episode. We begin with a look at Kendra's experience editing her book, and what attracted her to Butler's work, before jumping into discussions about science fiction writing, the environment, representation in literature, and much more. Connecting current social movements to those of Butler's time, this episode ultimately reflects on the timeless nature of Butler's work and her uncanny ability to predict the future. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking to Kendra R. Parker, one of the editors of the Bloomsbury Handbook to Octavia E. Butler. Thanks so much for being on the show, Kendra. In anticipation of our talk, I actually started reading Kindred, and I'm totally captivated by it so far, so I'm extra excited to hear your reflections on Butler's legacy. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So just thinking a little bit about how this project came to be, you must have felt a real significant sense of responsibility in putting together this collection of essays on one of the most prominent 20th century science fiction writers. So how did you go about deciding how the book would be structured and and what particular areas of Butler's work would it cover? Right. Uh, this is this is a lovely question. Well, I didn't do it alone, right? So <laughs> that was helpful. <laughs> I had a co-editor for the book, Dr. Gregory Hampton, and he actually approached me some years ago. He emailed me. He was like, hey, I got a book idea. I don't want you to be the co-editor. So can we talk about it next week? And I was like, well, I'll be in D.C. So how about I just meet you? And so we did. Right. I, I met him in his office at Howard University and he was like, so dig it. <laughs> and he started talking about the book and it was really cool. And so the structure initially had two parts. And so the first major part was he absolutely wanted to have Dr. Sandra Govan, Tanana Du, and Stephen Barnes be part of it in some way. Dr. Govan, because she's really the pioneer of Butler scholarship. And so he definitely wanted her represented. And then Tanana Du and Stephen Barnes were close friends with Butler. And so that was a given. And he was he's friends with all three of them. And so he felt like he could get the big namers. And so after that, it was a matter of just constructing the call for papers. And once the abstracts started coming in, I started to see a pattern. And so I actually suggested the structure for the text. So I wanted to name the book after, you know, the Xenogenesis trilogy, Dawn, Adulthood Rights, and Imago. And essentially, I wanted the structure of this collection to mimic what we see Lilith and the Owen colleague going through throughout the Xenogenesis trilogy. And so the first section of the collection is really just focusing on themes and concepts that were likely already familiar to those who were well-versed in Butler scholarships. And in that section, we also placed a reprint article from Dr. Sammy Schalk on disability. The second section, Adulthood Rights, really focused on works that covered the Xenogenesis trilogy. We had so many people interested in talking about that series, so it just made sense to put them all in one section together. And the third section, Imago, focused on works that really broke new ground, we thought, in terms of Butler's scholarship from fan fiction to graphic novel adaptations, Butler's unfinished novel, and a cover analysis of Kindred throughout the years. And so that's essentially how the project came to be structured. Hmm. 
And a little bit more about the process, you know, looking at this collection, obviously she, Butler has such a, a vast collection of things that you could have chosen to feature in the book. Are there any particular areas that it touched upon on which you'd like to see more work being done? And on that note, were there any gaps that you'd like you'd have liked to see filled, but that you were unable to find a, a suitable candidate to write on? Oh, absolutely. So in terms of more work being done, I would love to see more stuff on disability studies. There are already folks doing lovely work on Butler and critical disability studies like Dr. Anna Hinton, Dr. Sammy Schalk, and Dr. Tree Pickens. And personally speaking, my students are very interested in critical disability studies and critical disability theory. And so because I teach Butler, I often use that lens to talk about it. And so it would be lovely to have more scholarship on that and more scholarship than already exists. And I would also love to see more graphic adaptations of her work. I know some of those are in the works, but Yerman's piece in the edited collection on the graphic adaptation was Kindred is actually one of my favorites. And so I would love to see more scholarship on that graphic adaptation, as well as the graphic adaptation for Parable of the Sower. And so for the second part of your question, in terms of any gaps that we wanted to see filled, Yes, there was one in particular. We had a scholar submit an abstract on hip hop religious studies in Butler, and we were super excited about it. I know I couldn't wait to read the full essay. However, the scholar ultimately had to withdraw their submission because of some previous commitments. So there's that. And then I would also like to see more scholarship on her 1984 novel, Clay's Ark specifically, which is part of her Patternist series, especially since it's set in like 2020, 2021. And there's a brief reference to a pandemic. Oh my God, are you serious? (laughs) I mean, yeah, I mean, there's so much more to it than that. I know, but there's, there's so much more to it than that. And in that little tidbit, really, I, I was rereading it for a class this semester. And I was like, oh, wow, pandemic. Interesting. But it was a super brief reference. But I would still love to see more work on that. I think the last time I checked, there were only three publications devoted to Clay's art specifically. So that would be a, an area I'd love to see more expansion on. Hmm. Yeah, I'm also really intrigued by the hip hop religion one as well. I really hope that that comes to fruition, maybe in some of your future works on Octavia Butler, right? Right. I hope so. I actually reached out to that scholar last year in January, actually, and they they mentioned that they were still interested in it, but it was going to take about a year for them to be able to get back to it. Of course, with you know the COVID-19 pandemic, I don't know how that disrupted their workflow, but they haven't abandoned it completely. And so maybe maybe after this, I'll send them an email and see where they are on that because I would love to read it. Yeah, me too. It's really an intersection I find quite fascinating, like popular music and religion. But, you know, not only is this book an analysis of Butler's greatest works, but what I also find interesting about the book is that it features new discoveries from the Butler archives at the Huntington Library. Can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about anything new or surprising that you've discovered about her? Yeah, so I'm really grateful for the scholars who had and have the opportunity to visit the Butler archives. And so one of the reasons we were so enthusiastic about chapters nine and 11 is because they, you know, incorporated that. And so Lee's chapter, which focuses on trauma and the parables and then Butler's unfinished parable trilogy, I learned that the parable of the trickster that is unfinished is actually based on African and Native American folklore, not the Bible, which Parable of the Sower and the Talents really pay homage to that. And so that was super fascinating to know. And then in the trans-historical time travel chapter by Montgomery and Caldwell, 
one of the coolest things to do is to go look at the end notes. <laughs> it's super nerdy, I know, but they have tidbits of information about the archives, <laughs> like Butler's correspondence with friends about how much she liked the cover of Kindred. And then somebody else wrote back and they were like, whoever did the cover of Kindred, are they going to do the cover of Wild Seed? Because the good cover is a big deal. It was just really, really cool to, to find out that information. And I would say, though, that beyond this collection is Linnell George's 2020 publication, A Handful of Earth, A Handful of Sky, The World of Octavia E. Butler. And it's a fascinating look at Butler's life through the archives. We get to see like ticket stubs, notes of affirmation, and so much more. Hmm. Yeah. And on a more personal note, I mean, like you've obviously been studying Butler for a long time and and through the process of this book, do you feel, do you feel like you've started relating to her differently? I mean, like what sort of attracted you to studying her work in the first place? (laughs) This is so funny. (laughs) So I was, the very first time I was introduced to Butler, it was an undergrad and we were supposed to read Parable of the Sower for a a class. And I'm going to blame it on being a senior and having senioritis, but I didn't, I don't think I got more than five pages into the book. And I was like, yeah, this isn't for me. I don't like this book. And, (laughs) but I kept the book, right? (laughs) I kept the book. I never got rid of it. And then when I went to grad school, Greg Hampton, Dr. Hampton was actually my professor. And so he had just finished writing a book on Butler. And so then he was teaching this class on Butler and I'd already had him for one class before. And I loved it, learned so much. So I took this class on Butler and uh, the first work we read, if I'm not mistaken, was Kindred. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. And so we read every work in that class that she'd written except the parable series, right? So we didn't read that, but I fell in love with her work. And um, as we were reading, you know, I kept seeing like the word vampire pop up a couple of times in, in certain books. And then she only had one vampire novel. And so my entire seminar paper for that semester was tracing the trope of vampirism throughout Butler's fiction. And that's essentially where I got my start with her work. And, you know, that's, I mean, I really owe all of my academic everything to Butler's work. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I guess the joke was on you, the senior version of you, <laughs> thinking that you didn't. Yeah. Now you're one of the... It really was. It, sorry? Her, yeah, and it was, it was just, oh no, it was just, I didn't, I just didn't care for the book. And I, like I said, I only read like five pages. And when I finally went back to reread it, I was like, what was I thinking? This book is amazing. So, yeah. Yeah, you know, I have to admit, like, I've been intending to read more Octavia Butler uh, for a long time. I'm not, you know, on the record, I'm not, like, the biggest science fiction fan, but I obviously know she's, like, an immensely important author to to read. And I just, like I said, I, I just started reading Kindred, and I remember the bookstore owner just told me, he's like, all right, just so you know, like, this book is going to ruin you. Like, it's devastating. But, and I mean, it's... It is incredible. Like I now know like why everybody is is so obsessed with her. She's just so readable on top of everything else. She's just like such a gorgeous storyteller. Um, She really is. She really is. Yeah. And I think the obviously and, you know, especially what you just said about like maybe she anticipated a pandemic. Other reasons. There are so many reasons why Butler's prescience in the themes that she addressed seem so relevant today. And I I wonder if you could speak a little bit about her relationship to things like environmentalism and the climate crisis, for instance. Like, what would her thoughts be on this issue? Oh, man. Yeah. Her interviews. Oh, in her interviews, you can tell that she was just deeply concerned that we would pretty much destroy the planet 
if things continued on the way they were. And in one interview, I believe it was her 1980 interview with Harrison, she said that we Americans are very short-sighted and that we just assume that we'll always have it good just because it's always been good. So we don't think about the long-term impacts of what we do to the environment or to the earth. And I think she would have that same assessment now that we've wrongly believed that we would fix whatever environmental or social problems that we have with technology, and we just haven't. And so I think the pessimism that she expressed then, I think she would be sitting in her chair like, yep, told y'all. <laughs> I was right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. so has she had a lot of interviews where she was talking about sort of like American consumption habits or... Yeah, she was uh, really interested in capitalism and its harms, right? And one of the things she said, she was like, yeah, it was, she was like, for some people, if you speak against capitalism, that's like speaking against God. It's capitalism becomes their religion. So she was deeply suspicious of that. She was deeply suspicious of what she called throwaway labor, where, you know, you, I mean, essentially wage slavery is what she was very suspicious of and deeply, deeply troubled by and how it was used to perpetuate harms. And she said, you know, we do it to, at that time, she was talking about Latinx individuals who were taking the brunt of, I guess, that sort of throwaway labor. But she said, we can't just ignore that because whatever happens to one group is eventually going to happen to another. And we really need to be mindful of that. But yeah, she was definitely concerned not only with our consumption, but our desire for technology without thinking about the sociological impacts of that technology. She was like, we we're very technologically savvy or interested in technology, but we don't think about the humans behind it or the humanity behind it or the sociological implications of using technology and how that can harm others. On that issue, are there any particular moments that her work like speaks to that today? Like particular issues with technology Particular issues with technology. Maybe like, so like to clarify, like how do you think she would feel about Twitter and sort of the fight to censor certain people on social media, specifically our former president? But do you think she would have any opinion <laughs> on that? <laughs> oh, well, I think she would. Well, so in her parable of the talents book, there's a presidential candidate whose slogan is make America great again. And this person, yeah, and this and this person is terrifying. And so there is also the, there's a fundamentalist Christian America coalition. It's essentially like a neo-KKK going around and enslaving people. They've got people in collars. And so, and he essentially, he wins the election. If I recall that correctly, it's been a while since I've read Parable of the Talents. But I mean, I absolutely think she would support the removal of this dangerous rhetoric because of precisely what happens in Parable of the Talents. The rhetoric is, you know, there it's not just words. It's deeply, deeply dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, think we're kind of already touching upon it, but like thinking about other political movements today and the kind of, I think we all know after what happened at the Capitol that words mean something and they can yield violence. Mm-hmm. And obviously, the white supremacists in this country are totally emboldened, both at, you know, on a mainstream level by a majority of, of Republicans, for instance. But on the, on the flip side of that, obviously, in light of the murder of George Floyd, we've 
Bowen, mm-hmm. you're witness to this mass civil rights movement this year. Are there clues, like what clues to you does, does Butler's work give us as to how she may have viewed the Black Lives Matter movement or on the flip side, the sort of alt-right white supremacist movement happening today? And do you feel like her work predicts it or anticipates it in any way? Yeah, yeah, no, good question. So, um, you know, having lived through the Reagan era, having seen labor exploitation, the ravages of capitalism and writing about new forms of slavery and so much more, I would say Butler would not be surprised by the Black Lives Matter movement, nor would she be surprised by the public displays of white terrorism that we've just so recently seen. She was always watching the news. I won't say that her work anticipates or predicts the Black Lives Matter movement, though, like I said a second ago, her work does seem eerily prophetic in other ways. But I do think that some of her writing offers an endorsement for coalition building and for preparation, both of which are central to Black Lives Matter and other liberation movements. For example, Kindred, Parable of the Sower, and Dawn all feature protagonists who emphasize the importance of preparation. So Dana, Lauren, and Lilith, they all prepare. They're preparing to fight or to flee or to survive. They pack things like money, medication, food, supplies, things that they will need for their respective journeys. And this is actually before they know if something will happen. For them, it's not a matter of if it will happen, but when it will happen, the need to be prepared. And in terms of coalition building, Butler shares in an interview with Mahaffey and Keating that she had always created community, even around people who didn't like her much, but they found ways of getting along. And so we see that reflected in both Kindred and Parable. Folks building community despite their differences as a way to advance a singular cause, survival. And I think those things are really important, especially in terms of the coalition building that's happening, you know, within the Black Lives Matter movement and different things like that. Yeah, like the different, I mean, do you think This is maybe an offhanded question, but what I find so tricky about coalition building is that you're often, or there's this potential to get into bed with sort of strange bedfellows, maybe people whose goals for the the movement are kind of contradictory. I mean, do you have any feeling about like how to work through those tensions of like how we actually create an umbrella around, yeah, like a tent above the movement at large without sort of compromising fundamental values of what Black Lives Matter strives for, if that makes sense. Right. I think what's important is, no, no, it does. I think it, I think it does make sense. I think one of the, the key things that Black Lives Matter does is that it's not just for cis heterosexual Black men. And that's part of the foundation. Now, sometimes that may get lost in how other people perceive Black Lives Matter, right? Which is uh, why the hashtag say her name is really important. But the founders of Black Lives Matter, you know, believe that the least of these, if you will, so if you're queer, Black, disabled, poor, right? Like if we can focus on those who are marginalized the most in terms of within the community, then the liberation that we're seeking will eventually come. I'm not sure if that makes entirely that much sense, but the idea is that you can't leave anyone behind. So if we're just saying Black Lives Matter when it's a cis heterosexual Black man, but we're not saying Black Lives Matter when it comes to, you know, a trans woman, a Black trans woman, then there's something wrong. If all Black lives can't matter, then you shouldn't be saying Black lives matter, if that makes sense. And so I think that's, that's really important. I think that's part of what Butler gets at She's looking for the survival of all, right? All of those who are marginalized. And does that make sense? Yeah, it does. And, you know, yeah, this idea that basically that none of us are free until we all are, that all of our liberations are connected to one another. 
You know, on on that note about the Black Lives Matter movement, I think one popular sort of subgroup of that or something that a lot of people who are part of the movement subscribe to is Afrofuturism. Butler is often thought of as the mother of Afrofuturism, which is, you know, like a philosophy that has very popular cultural markers today. You know, movies like Black Panther and musicians like Janelle Monae, for instance. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about this philosophy? Because I think it's wrapped up in a lot of popular misconceptions. I think it's often thrown around. The term is thrown around a lot, often like intersectionality is without people like fully understanding what it means. But then can you also discuss its sort of ongoing importance and and what Butler's relationship to it is? Absolutely. So Yatasha Womack describes Afrofuturists as redefining culture and notions of Blackness for today and for the future, whether that's through music, technology, literature, art. There's just so many different ways. And so for me, that simple definition describes Butler perfectly. Butler was interested in representing Black people's lives beyond racism. You know, her work approaches those themes, certainly, but her work imagine Black lives in different worlds. What if Black people could shapeshift? What if Black people were vampires? What if Black people could transform their cancerous cells into life-lengthening properties? So the idea that the only, that their Blackness wasn't just about talking about racism, it was about living lives. Now, in terms of how Butler would have labeled herself, she wasn't interested in labels. She thought of herself as a science fiction writer, though later in her career, When it came time to place Parable of the Sower at a publisher, she chose a press that wasn't known solely for science fiction because she wanted to reach a wider audience. And so I think that was interesting. Hmm. What works of hers do you think best exemplify the idea of Afrofuturism, even if she wouldn't necessarily be comfortable with that term? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah, no, I absolutely think I would say that Wild Seed, right? Because you've got this Black woman who's a shapeshifter, fledgling, really interesting. You've got a Black vampire who's half human, half vampire. This idea that vampires aren't, they're just a separate species. I think the entire Xenogenesis trilogy, what does it mean when you're no longer the other (laughs) in a way of being a black woman, no longer the other when you encounter this non-human species and that non-human species puts you in charge of essentially transforming a group of humans into superhumans to, you know, I don't want to spoil it or anything, (laughs) but also what does it mean when you encounter the other and you become a test subject, but your cancerous cells give you, you know, life lengthening properties. So, and then of course, I think parable of the sower It's definitely a futuristic look at what could happen to the United States. It's bleak. It's more like what's going to happen to the United States if we keep going in the direction that we're going into. And the idea that we have an emerging leader, uh, Lauren Olamina, a young black girl, you know, she's a teenager when the book starts, you know, rising up to become a leader. Thinking about her legacy a little bit more. I found, we came across this quote that was reposted, republished in Lit Hub, but came from Octavia E. Butler telling my stories. And she said, why aren't there more science fiction Black writers? There aren't because there aren't. What we don't see, we assume can't be. What a destructive assumption. Butler was posthumously placed on the bestseller list. How do you think that this contributes to her legacy and what the success means for other Black women science fiction writers? Yeah, that quote's super interesting. Butler, she reiterated that a number of times in different interviews that, you know, essentially that you can't be what you can't see. But, you know, Butler was certainly a pioneer, but her book being placed on the New York Times bestseller list is a confirmation of what many of us already knew, that her work was in, is, and will remain crucial 
And I think Butler's body of work in and of itself outside of or before the New York Times achievement was key and an inspiration for a number of Black writers. And so in the introduction to Damien Duffy and John Jennings' graphic adaptation of Kindred, African futurist writer Nnedi Okorafor writes, In many ways, reading Wild Seed proved that what I was writing was okay, that people like me could be part of this canon. This was a very big deal to me. And I think Okorafor's observation rings true to many Black writers of science fiction that Butler's work was a confirmation of what they knew to be true that they just maybe hadn't seen before. And we can even see this within the book collection, Octavia's Brood, Science Fiction Stories from Social Justice Movements. It's edited by Adrienne Marie Brown and Walida Imarisha. Or we can even see it with Tanana Reeve Du and Monica Coleman's Octavia Tried to Tell Us webinar series. These are just a couple of examples that Butler's work had and still has an impact on Black women writers and Black women readers of science fiction. And so that's just one of the legacies that she left behind. Yeah, she was like somewhat of a pioneer. It's just that it seems like she's, you know, given people permission, basically, to do what she did. That suddenly, like, that's why visibility is so important. Representation is so important. Seeing somebody that looks like you that did it before you gives you a new entrance. Oh, no. Yeah, it gives it gives you a new entryway into something. No, I was just going to agree and say that it's one of the reasons that I try to at least incorporate one Butler text into my class as often as possible, because students are like, who is this? This is an amazing work. Like, she's kind of weird. This is cool. I've never read this before. It really is important to have her works. And so she's absolutely a pioneer and an inspiration. Hmm. Just out of curiosity, like, what are your students saying about her work? How Are they saying anything interesting or surprising to you? Yeah. A few years ago, when I taught Parable of the Sower for the first time, and I I told my students this story about me not liking it, when when I came to class for the first day we were going to discuss it, the first question was, what was wrong with you, Dr. Parker? Like, how did you not like this book? I was like, I know, I know. But then others, like, they absolutely love Kindred. It's really interesting sometimes to see the racial demographics of a classroom At my previous institution, I was teaching, I taught Kindred in a predominantly white classroom and a number of the students, black and white, didn't actually realize that the novel was set in the 1970s. They thought it was set like in the year 2000 in the 21st century. And I was like, no, it's 1970s. I was like, it was published in 1979. And they were like, but all of the things that are happening, like they happen now. I was like, "Mm mm-hmm. And so they absolutely loved it. And for them... They actually thought that Kindred made slavery more real to them. And at this point, they had read a particular emancipatory narrative in the classroom before, so they weren't unfamiliar with the genre. But it was something about a modern woman being transported back and the way that she described things. They absolutely felt like it was eye-opening for them in a number of ways. I have some students who really enjoy Wild Seed. They always make mention of the dolphin sex, which I think is hilarious. Um, that's <laughs> like the first thing they talk about. <laughs> they're like, the dolphin sex, right? And they, but they, they're so interested in all of the research that Butler puts into her work. They're like, wow, she she's not just writing a story. She's like, she researched it and it's very well told. And I honestly think Butler would be super excited about that because you know, one of the things she says is she was like, you know, she doesn't say social commentary, but, you know, she's like, there's social commentary in my works. But she said, none of that matters if the story isn't good. She was like, people come for the story. And so you have to be able to tell a really good story. So my students absolutely love her work, whether it's fledgling on vampires or kindred or wild seed. 
Mind of My Mind, or even the short story I've taught, The Book of Martha, before. They really resonate with Butler's works in so many different ways. Yeah, I have to agree. There is something so timeless about her work. With Kindred, I agree that you rarely can tell that it takes place in the 70s as opposed to the 21st century. There's something wildly depressing about that, but it also just speaks Mm -hmm. to... (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I think it also just speaks to how forward-thinking she was in a number of ways. And and I agree that like it there's something about her work that really makes you experience the horrors of slavery on a different level. And perhaps with, um, you know, Kindred specifically, and I, and I hope I'm not giving anything away, but at one point, it's like Dana, because she's like a modern woman, you almost experience the double horror through her because she's, she says something at one point where she, you know, she understands the horror of slavery through films and textbooks, but there's something so different about experiencing that violence. Like she witnesses a patrol member beat a slave and she sees it and she wants to throw up and like through her, it, it's almost like you're, I don't know, it was just such a visceral scene for me because she, she's right. There is this sort of like removal or this emotional distance when you're just reading about something in a history textbook. And I don't know, she just like has this incredible ability to make things feel so alive. No, I I absolutely agree. And that's actually one of the scenes that my students really, they're like, you know, she describes the sweat and the smell and the sound. And they always say that that part just it, because it's so sensory, they really, really, they really feel it. I think that's what it is, right? It's like you can taste it. it you can feel the, the tension in the air. There's something that makes it so much more palpable and therefore so much more horrifying. Yeah. So, you know, just in light of what your students are saying, it's so obvious that there's all these reasons why her work remains important. But on a final note, what do you think it is about Butler's work that makes it so increasingly relevant today? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Butler was a self-proclaimed watcher of people. She was interested in research. She was interested in sociology and anthropology. And she was deeply interested in human beings and how we would act. And in an interview with Jelani Cobb, Butler once said, there are so many terrible things that are going on that no one is paying attention to it because they aren't quite that bad yet. And for me, it is all of those things, her people watching, her interest in sociology and anthropology, and her fear that no one was paying attention. That's what makes her work so relevant today because she wrote about the things that stirred her. She was deeply concerned with the state of things that she didn't think folks were paying attention to. And she put those concerns in her parable series. And if you read them now, they're eerily prophetic. And But that's what makes her work so relevant today because she's concerned with the human condition and she doesn't shy away from it. She literally, I think she literally says, you know, I write what stirred me. Yeah, I mean, I just wish that she was around today just to tell people I told you so, just because it really does feel like everything that she was talking about, you know, all these underlying tensions in our society are just going to come to some horrible, violent climax if we continue to ignore them. And that's precisely what's happening right now. No, absolutely. And I think that's one of the really great things about the Octavia Tried to Tell Us series that Sanana Reeve and Monica Coleman, the webinar series that they've been hosting, because they're they are literally like, I mean, it's titled Octavia Tried to Tell Us. And she really did. And so I don't know, it's there's something I'm with you. I kind of I wish she was here, but hmm. yeah. So for people who are hopefully very sold on reading Octavia Butler now, but like haven't 
read anything by her. Do you have any recommendations for where to begin? Oh, <laughs> this is right up there with <laughs> this is right up there with what's your favorite Octavia Butler book? Because <laughs> sorry, such an impossible question. <laughs> I know the answer to that one is whichever one I'm reading at the moment. <laughs> so there's that. Oh my goodness. I honestly think that a really good place to start would be Wild Seed. Wild Seed or Kindred, simply because, you know, I will say I've had students who they first started off reading Butler, they read Butler's Dawn. And they're like, okay, this is, they're like, we like it because you're super enthusiastic about it, but it's weird. And they came to appreciate it later. But they were like, yeah, it's just kind of weird. They're like, I don't know if I would have picked this up by myself. But then students who've read Kindred, Wild Seed, or Fledgling, they all like, oh, this is amazing. I want to read everything else that she's read. And so I think that functions as an entryway. So if I had to pick one or pick three, I'd say Wild Seed, Kindred, or Fledgling to start with. Okay. Maybe I'll pick up Wild Seed after this, after I'm finished with Kindred, which should be any day now. It's really kind of just zooming by. And honestly, I have to say it's so impressive in this time when, you know, as a big reader, I'm sure that a lot of people have experienced this during quarantine as well. My attention span is so shot. I've found it utterly impossible to keep attention with a book for that long. It's really hurt my reading. But with Kindred, I'm just like, (laughs) I just... I sat with it for a hundred pages in, in one sitting and that hasn't happened in a, a long time at this point. So hopefully that's testament to her incredible storytelling abilities, people listening. Oh, oh, absolutely. That book is amazing. And I, I have to say that since you're enjoying Kindred so much, you absolutely have to read the graphic adaptation of it by John Jennings and Damian Duffy. It is, it is so good. It's such a good graphic novel adaptation of Kindred. And like after I read the graphic novel adaptation, I went back to read Kindred because of that. Right. And I love Kindred, but it's, it's a really good one. So that's yeah, a recommendation thank, for you. Thank you so much. <laughs> I also happen to love graphic novels. So it's a pretty great intersection for me. I'm definitely going to read that after this. <laughs> yeah. Oh, definitely do it. Well, Thank you so much, Kendra. This has been amazing. I hope everybody like me wants to go immediately and buy a new Octavia Butler book or even better, you can check out Kendra's handbook on Octavia Butler's work, which I'll link to in the show notes. But yeah, thank you once again. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. 